morning and welcome to the first of three webinars leading up to the Cumberland Lodge Police Conference um, coming up this summer, um, being held virtually in June this year. Um, the topic of this year's conference is Towards Justice, Law Enforcement and Reconciliation. Um, I'm really pleased to welcome you all to this webinar um, and this particular series which examines criminal justice and other approaches to addressing historical wrongs in society in particular those wrongs which involve state agents. Um, in that context, I think it is worth noting that today is Holocaust Memorial Day and a number of organizations, including policing organizations um, and many others will be marking today um, as an example of the extent to which states can cause harm. Um, of course, the most extreme example of um, harms that have been committed both in scale and the seriousness and severity of um, harm and murder um, in the name of a state. So it's worth noting that in the context of this particular debate um, and particular discussion today. So it reminds us of the capacity of states to commit the most atrocious crimes. The seminar series will look at the different historical wrongs um, and harms that have been committed um, but it will also explore the role of state agents in, and in particular the police, in promoting successful and enduring conciliation and the pursuit, pursuit of wider social justice aims and goals. Um, so we're looking at both elements of that particular debate. My name is Martina Falze. Um, I'm a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Bangor University in North Wales. Um, professor Kenneth um, um I'm also a freelance research associate supporting this project um, and the author of the briefing document, Responding to Past Harms, which you can download from the Cumberland Lodge website if you're interested in having um, a little read. Um, I'll be writing short briefings for all of the um, webinars and a, a report that will be accompanying the, the conference um, in the summer. So today we will explore some of the pressing questions around addressing past injustices and historical wrongs in policing and society. Um, and we will examine how these are recognized, prioritized and dealt with in a fair and productive way. Um, I am extremely pleased and delighted to be joined by three um, experts and, and commentators um, and also colleagues who are working in the field of actually addressing some of those past harms. Um, uh, really delighted that they've made the time to join us today. So our panel members are Chief Constable Simon Bailey, um, holder of the Queen's Police Medal, um, who's the Chief Constable of Norfolk Constabulary. He's also the National Police Lead for Child Abuse Investigations and for Violence and Public Protection. Um, welcome and thank you for joining us, Simon. Um, Wendy Williams, CBE, um, who is um, a inspector of Her Majesty's Constabulary um, and who was the chief, a chief crown prosecutor with the CPS prior to that and is joining us today um, in her capacity and her experiences of those roles, but also, of course, very importantly, as the author of the Lessons Learned Review, which was um, set up to respond to the Windrush scandal. Um, welcome, Wendy, and thank you very much for joining us and for giving up your time. Thank you, Martina. Um, and then 
Uh, last but of course not least, we've, we are joined by uh, Matthew Scott, who is a criminal barrister at Pump Court Chambers um, and who is one of a number of barristers who are um, providing very astute and um, sometimes I would say uncomfortable commentary on the functioning of the law and the criminal justice system. And his blog is well worth a follow. Um, so here's some free advertising for um, the blog. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, and for your time. Thank you very much, Martina. Okay, so in terms of audience um, participation, of course, um, this is a recorded webinar, so um, you are able to ask questions through the Q&A function on um, the chat in Zoom. Um, you can also comment on the Facebook live stream, and there is a live tweet um, happening. Um, and I think if we can put some of those details in, in the chat, then you can um, refer to those um, as well. So the, the tweet is at Cumberland Lodge, um, and there's a hashtag, um, CI Towards Justice. So those are the details. We'll pick up on some of those questions as we go along and towards the end. But we have a number of questions that we have prepared um, and that we would like to ask our panelists to, to comment on. So Matthew, if I can start with you. In terms of um, the question of, of different types of past harms, what do you regard as the commonalities, but also the distinctions maybe between different types of past harm? Well, I think there are very many different types of past harms that have to be approached in a different way. So I mean, as we're starting, um, I suppose one starts from the point that all investigations, all prosecutions um, necessarily involve the investigation or prosecution of a past harm or a past alleged harm. Uh, but I think what we're more concerned with in, in this, um, this discussion is about relatively distant past harms. So um, there are an awful lot that we, we, could, we could cover. Um, ordinary, I put it that, that way, ordinary historic crimes, um, almost always very serious crimes. Um, in this country, uh, murder is often investigated long after the event and sex crimes particularly are often investigated long after the event. It's not very often we hear about the historic prosecution for a a burglary or, a, or a, a shoplifting or something like that. We're dealing with serious crimes that are um, investigated a long time after the event, what, what, what we often call historic. People get very uppity whether they should be called historic or historical. I'm, I'm not, not quite sure, but I think we know what we're talking about. Um, so those are the ordinary crimes, um, but then there are lots of different ones. Um, war crimes fall into a very different category um, not often prosecuted in, in this country, um, often prosecuted in international courts, um, often going back, or, or, or say often, um, they're not, not very many prosecutions, but when they are prosecuted, they often go back over many, many years, even um, certainly Second World War is still just about within living memory, uh, um, appropriately enough today, but there have been other holocausts in uh, other countries, in Rwanda particularly, um, and uh, there's still uh, terrible crimes being committed in, in Syria today. So there are other um, crimes that they're quite different um, in, in nature, really, from what one might call ordinary crimes and usually prosecuted in different courts. Then I suppose we have 
um, crimes committed by states, um, including our own state. Um, we can look back into our colonial history. Um, one thinks perhaps of Kenya or Cyprus. I don't know that there have been many prosecutions arising out of the British state's behaviour in, in those countries. Um, likewise, Northern Ireland. Again, not many prosecutions, although there is certainly talk of prosecuting British um, state agents in Northern Ireland. It's, it's a controversial area. Um, then I suppose we have harms that were committed in the past that weren't really considered crimes at all at the time. And, and one thinks of Wendy's area of specialization here, the, the, the Windrush scandal, for example. Um, in recent days, we've heard about the mother and baby homes in, in Ireland, um, things which might look like crimes now, but at the time were not considered crimes. And then one can go back even further into history, I suppose, uh, and consider things which really are purely historic, such as slavery. Um, clearly harms, not considered crimes at all at the time, um, but uh, we will consider them crimes now. And finally, I suppose, um, well, I say finally, there may be other categories, but, but, but finally, from my point of view, there are miscarriages of justice, which often involve um, terrible harms committed to people many years earlier, um, indeed ongoing harms when, when people are, are still imprisoned for crimes that they haven't committed, um, those are past harms, and uh, I'm not sure that in this country we deal with them particularly well, either with um, correcting them or, or indeed with compensating them. So th those are those are some of the um, some of the different types of harms that I, I, I hope we might be talking about today. Thank you, Matthew. Um, and in terms of of those different types of harms, they then we would expect trigger different types of responses to some extent as well. So that's the other the other side of the discussion that we'd be hoping to pick up. Yes, some of them can be dealt with in court, some of them can't. Um, and if they can't be dealt with in court, I, I, don't, I don't regard courts as a, um, the only way of achieving some sort of justice, but it's, it's certainly the first thing that springs to mind. Ordinary historic crimes, yes, they can be dealt with in court in, on, on some occasions. I think we've got it wrong on others but uh, they can be dealt with in court. Um, some of the more political issues, such as things arising out of, I don't know, South Africa or, or, or Northern Ireland, um, perhaps better dealt with out of court. Um, but um, but there, there are different ways of dealing with those different types of harms, obviously. Thank you. Great. So, Simon, if I can pick up on those different types of harms, um, how do you think we, we can or should distinguish between these different types of harms? Or do they sit, sit on a um, continuum and can they be considered as such, keeping in mind the different responses that they, they are likely to trigger um, in some instances? So I, I think if you, if you look back over our, our very recent history, it is, it is littered with public inquiries, public hearings, whereby we have, as a country, had to come to terms with past harms, past failings, and, and, and scandals. And there are currently two ongoing at this moment in time with the, the undercover uh, inquiry uh, into uh, the, the, our undercover system and our approach, and of course, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. But I'd, 
I'd, I'd almost like to flip the, flip the question to, to take a slightly different perspective and to look at it through the lens of, of a victim or somebody that's been a party to a, a past harm. And it's, uh, it's really interesting uh, listening to, to Matthew talking about is it historical or is it historical? Certainly victims and survivors of child sexual abuse would say it's not historical or historic, it's, it's non-recent because actually for them it is very much a part of their everyday everyday life. And having spent time working very closely with, with victims of non-recent child sexual abuse and having spent time in, in Northern Ireland, where of course there is a, a real thrust to come to terms with the, the past harms during the, during the troubles, it's, it's almost a case of, of the victims and the survivors. Uh, it's very difficult to say that they all want the same thing because in my experience, that is that is simply not, not the case. Uh, there are some victims and survivors that wish to see some form of, of criminal justice outcome, uh, a prosecution. There are victims and survivors that simply wish to see uh, some form of acknowledgement and admission that they were failed and they were a victim of, of abuse or, or exploitation. And in terms of those, those past harms, they are unique to those individuals. So would a, would a victim of uh, perceived exploitation at the hands of a, an undercover officer hold the same views as somebody that's been the victim of the abuse of power while they were abused as a, as a young boy or a young girl within, a, within a, an institution like a, like a school? Their, their experiences will be, one of, will be one of power, but actually the harm will be, will be different and it is how we come to terms with and we deal with the past harms from my perspective in the terms of the individual experience of each of those victims and, and survivors. And of course, the approach that, that we have to uh, design and deliver for them, again, is going to be bespoke to each, to each case, to each set of, of circumstances. And it is so important that when we have these, these public inquiries, public hearings, that there is some form of, of resolution at the end of it where victims and survivors feel confident that actually future generations will hopefully not have to suffer in the way that they suffered because victims and survivors will tell you that their abuse is not something that's part of a, of a distant memory. It is there. They have to uh, live with it. They have to deal with it. They have to cope with it on a, on a daily basis. And some are more successful than others at being able to, to achieve that. But we should never underestimate the harm that has been caused, the impact upon uh, thousands and thousands of, of victims and whatever form of, of abuse that they have been subjected to, and the importance of that acknowledgement and that recognition that actually there has been some form of failure be it at a state level, be it at an institutional level, or, or be it at, at the hands of, of an individual. And the coming to terms and the recognition of that, I think then allows society to start to form some form of, of healing process. But most importantly, it gives the victim or the survivor some, some form of, of resolution. And that for me is the key. Thank you, Simon. I think it's, it's, 
extremely important that the recognition that behind all those um, harms we have individual victims who experience those harms in in their own uh, way. But of course, in terms of setting parameters for for ideas around justice and and acknowledgement, um, it becomes quite difficult to then be clear what these parameters are. We have a good understanding, possibly around the parameters of criminal justice system, although there are clearly tensions and still disputes. But in terms of public inquiries, these are set, as you say, bespoke. And we have seen examples of where victims withdraw from the process fairly early on, or vocal victims withdraw and, and representatives of victims withdraw. How do we respond to that? How do we make sure that the parameters are set in a way that victims can actually buy into that process, if that's the right terminology? I, look, I, I, I absolutely agree. And we have seen uh, thousands of, of victims come forward and talk to uh, the, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse in terms of the truth hearings. And, and I think so many victim survivors have, have found some form of, of relief from their, their non-recent abuse, being able to tell a professional person in a professional setting what their experience was and to, to be able to, to talk to somebody in that environment has been so important. But I would absolutely recognize that of course that is not for, for everybody. And, and there are other victims of the survivors that would wish to pursue a very different uh, outcome, which is why there are currently so many investigations ongoing into, into non-recent allegations and a, a significant number of cases being brought to a, a successful criminal justice resolution. So it, victims and survivors all need to be treated, I believe, in a, in a unique way. We have a responsibility to be able to understand uh, them in a way that they feel believed, and I think that is very important, that they feel that their considerations and concerns are being dealt with in an appropriate way and actually, we are working with them to try and, to try and bring some form of, of resolution to their abuse. Thank you. Thanks, Simon. Um, I think it, it, this is a really good lead on to the discussion around um, the Windrush uh, Lessons Learned Review. Um, and Wendy, in your view, what the factors are that cause the society to address certain past harms, but maybe neglect others in that context. So. Child abuse, historic child abuse is, is a clear example of an ongoing public inquiries. Yours has, the lessons learned review has been completed. So, you know, it would be great to hear some reflections on that process and, and particularly maybe the, the question around how victims have responded to you um, in that context as well and to the, to the lessons learned review. Okay, thank you very much, Martina. In answer to the question, I should probably provide a bit of background information. The Windrush report was published last year and I was appointed in 2018 actually by the then Home Secretary to carry out the review into what's become known as the Windrush scandal. Uh, so I was asked to report on what had happened and also to make recommendations to hopefully avoid something similar happening again. And briefly, the scandal was that British subjects who'd come to the UK from the Caribbean between 1948 
1973 answering an invitation from the government to help rebuild post-war Britain found themselves treated as um, people who are here illegally because some of them didn't have the documents to prove their status through no fault of their own, I might add, and because official records weren't kept. So those who didn't have documentary proof of their status lost their jobs. And in fact, it, we believe it's thousands of people who were affected and they lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost access to public services, including healthcare. And in extreme circumstances, they were locked up, held in detention and even removed from the UK and returned to their country of birth. In some instances, a country that they hadn't seen for over 50 years. And what I was struck by was even before my appointment, um, so I was just a, a consumer of media uh, like everyone else. And when the scandal was first reported, um, I was struck by the universal sense of outrage and injustice. And that was across the range of different media outlets. Um, and there was this overwhelming sense of injustice. And I think it was that universal acceptance that this was a wrong, that it really shouldn't have happened, which perhaps goes to answer your question. Because in my report, I describe the Windrush events as a profound institutional failure. And I, I set out the fact that there were both internal and external warning signs, which the Home Office failed to take account of, which meant that this couldn't be regarded as just a case of bureaucratic bad luck. You know, this was a tragedy that was waiting to happen. So I think it's because of the scale of the injustice, also because of the nature of the error. I mean, this was an egregious error. Uh, and because it went to the heart of British values, you know, fair play, you know, you have the right to, to have your rights observed. I think that the department had to accept that it had done wrong um, and it had to, it had no choice but to commit to doing something about this. And I was struck by something that Simon had said, which was about that sense of acknowledgement that something has gone wrong, which is an essential prerequisite before you can then go on to talk about the future and how you might heal those past harms. So to summarize, an acceptance, a commitment to change, and then hopefully you create the platform, but I don't think it ends there. I think there has to be um, monitoring, scrutiny, oversight to make sure that we remain vigilant and that these past harms can't become future and indeed current harms. 
Thank you, Vanny. That's really helpful. Um, in terms of monitoring, I do know and I'm aware that you've, you've provided ongoing commentary because there was, of course, a wholesale adoption of the recommendations after your report um, was heard. Um, but the question, of course, always is then how these are implemented over, over time. Um, and maybe it's just an observation of something that was reported in The Guardian and, and which strikes home for me particularly is that apparently the Home Office is now encouraging EU citizens to consider um, if they have, don't want to apply for the settlement scheme they, ha scheme, they haven't applied for the settlement scheme, whether they want to leave the country. Um, and in this case, they offered a, um, a cash incentive and um, possibly a contribution to their flight home. So I wonder whether some of the underlying issues around um, the environment have not necessarily changed all that dramatically. Well, I, as I've indicated, um, we have to remain vigilant, and I count myself uh, in that we. Um, I've been asked to go back in a year's time uh, towards the end of this year to assess the extent to which the Home Office has implemented my recommendations. And what I've made clear in everything that I've said uh, about the review and its aftermath is that it's not enough to implement the letter of the recommendations, I've called for a wholesale cultural shift as far as the department's concerned. And without that cultural shift, without that leadership and that demonstrable commitment up and down and across the organisation, then you, you are at risk of not learning from past mistakes and you're at risk of replicating past harms. So, so I've always spoken in terms of the department having a seminal opportunity now to, to really get things right. Thanks, Wendy. And that, I think that ongoing sense of accountability and monitoring is, is a really important aspect of the, the kind of moving forwards then, once the acknowledgement of the past has happened, you know, to try and prevent, because of course that is another absolutely vital lesson from any of uh, harm, past harms, is that we prevent future harms. Um, so that, that sounds, you know, very positive that that ability has been built into your um, particular review, but I'm not sure that is necessarily the case um, for every public inquiry or for every review. Um, no, and I, I'm not aware of any follow-up to others, um, and there may very well be follow-up, but I can talk about my own review, and I would agree with you, Martina, I am delighted that that mechanism has been built into the process because it enables everyone to be satisfied or not uh, as to the extent to which the department has learned those lessons. Yeah. Great, thank you. Can I maybe slightly deviate and, and, and ask Matthew, in, in terms of some of those forms of accountability, of course, they come through institutional mechanisms and the mechanisms of accountability that are in place in terms of policing, in terms of political um, accountability, but there are external actors here as well. And, um, you know, we have the media as the, the fourth estate, but of course, with social media, we have got, um, an ability much more to hold the state to account. And I think that's partly what um, some of the legal commentators are, are aiming to do. Is that what you would see some of the 
the function of of your blog and and some of the contribution that you're making to pointing out what is is happening in the criminal justice system? Um, I suppose to an extent, I think I think it would be rather presumptuous of me to say I, I hold the the state to account. Um, can I can I comment on on things that Simon was saying because there's some of what he was saying I I agreed with and and some of what he was saying I rather disagreed with. Um, what I agree with is his point about um, past harms are often continuing harms and and I I I completely agree with his point that when somebody has been sexually abused. Um, that is something which can remain with with them for, forever, really. And so something which happened uh, 30, 40, 50 years ago can still be a continuing harm. Uh, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. Where I disagree with him, I, I think, and I don't, I don't think this will come as a great surprise to him, is in his... Um, something he said about the role of the police, I, I think he was talking about the police generally when he said we... Um, but he said, we are working with survivors to bring a sort of resolution to their abuse, uh, working with victims or survivors, I, I think he said. Now, that seems to me rather a dangerous approach for a police um, force to take, because there are two views of, of, of what the police should do. One view is that they should work with um, survivors or, or, or victims or complainants, whatever you call them, um, to uh, achieve prosecution or to achieve what it is that those complainants want to achieve. The other view of what the police should be doing, and I have to say this is my view, is that they should investigate complaints without any preconception as to um, what it is they're going to find. They may well find that there is evidence which supports what, what the victim, survivor, or complainant is saying. They may well find that there is no evidence either way, or they may find, if, if an investigation is carried out properly, that there is evidence which contradicts what um, somebody who may have started off as a seeming like a victim um, is, is saying. So I, I think there are great dangers in, in Simon's approach to policing of, of um, assuming from the outset of an investigation that uh, what it is you're going to find. Because it may be that the, uh, the victim who, who is describing appalling abuse is actually not a victim at all. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded of a very um, perceptive observation by, by Mr. Justice Leggett, now, now, now recently promoted to the Supreme Court. Um, it's, quite, it's quite an often quoted um, sort of dictum of, of, of his, perhaps more often quoted actually in the civil courts and in the criminal courts. But what, what, what he said back in 2013 in, in deciding a case was this, two common and related errors are to suppose that one, the stronger and more vivid is our feeling or experience of recollection, the more likely the recollection is to be accurate. And two, that the more confident another person is in their recollection, the more likely their recollection is to be accurate. Um, now, I think there's a danger here that a police force uh, can be led up the garden path sometimes. 
and I think jurors can be led up the garden path sometimes by um, cases often dating from long ago where there's very little corroboration, um, sometimes no corroboration at all, sometimes a single complainant or, or perhaps more often linked complainants um, where we're asking juries to decide cases almost on a hunch as to which witness seems more believable. Now, I think that's dangerous. And I think there is a, a particular danger um, in the police and the crime prosecution service bringing cases um, where there is so little corroboration, where things date from many, many years ago, um, which I think the justice system is ill-equipped to deal with. I'm not saying no historic or non-recent prosecution should ever take place. I'm not saying that at all. There are plenty of cases where the evidence is strong and it's right that prosecution should take place. But I think we've got the balance wrong. And I think that the um, approach that Simon outlined of, of the police were almost uh, acting as, as agents for the complainants to, to achieve what they want to achieve is, is, is a very dangerous approach. Thanks, Matthew. I imagine that Simon will have a, a wish to respond to, to that, but I think it goes to the, the heart of the tensions, partly between this kind of the need to acknowledge past harms, but also protecting possible um, defendants and people who've been accused and, and suspect of, of crime, um, but also, yeah, straying into areas which are not strictly framed by the criminal justice system. Simon. Yes, I think so. So thank you. And, and Matthew, thank you for for uh, opening up and, and, and giving us the opportunity to have this this conversation around the issue of of belief. So can, can I be can I be uh, very clear on what the police service position is on uh, on on this very point? There is a considerable body of evidence that makes it very clear that a major stumbling block to victims uh, coming forward is the issue of being believed. And we should not ever move away from the fact that actually the issue of belief is not a construct of the police service. It is a construct of and, and an element of the abuse of a victim because so many victims have told inquiries, told victims commissioners, told the NSPCC, told academics that one of the biggest stumbling blocks for them coming forward was being believed because during, before or after their abuse, they were being told constantly, don't bother reporting your abuse because you will not be believed. And that's why uh, the National Police Chiefs Council, the college position is so very clear on the issue of a victim should come forward and be confident that they will be believed. But this is where, this is the really important point. But once the, the evidence has been uh, secured from the victim survivor, thereafter, there should be, and is in the vast majority of cases, an impartial investigation. The investigating officers will go where the evidence takes them. They will secure and preserve the evidence and they will then approach the, the investigation with a completely open mind. And we are now seeing uh, investigations being conducted on that very premise 
resulting in no further action being taken, but also up and down the country on a very, very regular basis, successful prosecutions being, uh, being achieved. Now, I, I fell out with Sir Richard Enriquez during his review of Operation Midland on this, on this very point. Uh, my position on this is very clear. It's based upon a depth of academic evidence, and most recently that academic evidence is as a result of the victims commissioner speaking to, I think it was 400 victims, telling her the importance of being uh, believed. But the police service's response upon taking a report of, of abuse is to then investigate without fear or favour. And the victims support groups, vic uh, groups that work with victims and survivors are absolutely in that space. And when I, when I talk about the we, Matthew, I'm, I'm talking about uh, in my capacity as the National Police Chiefs Council Lead for Child Protection and the work that I do with all these other agencies and groups that are there to support, to support victims. And whilst there have been some very high profile cases like Operation Midland, which the Metropolitan Police have uh, apologised for profusely and the failings of it, I would, I would encourage uh, everybody that's, that's involved in this, this conference today to just to take a step back and look at the number of prosecutions that have successfully been achieved because victims have had the confidence to come forward, knowing that they will be believed, that an impartial investigation has taken place thereafter, and the evidence has been secured and preserved and presented to a jury and a conviction has been achieved. And the conviction rates for allegations of non-recent child sexual abuse are far, far greater at this moment in time than the appalling uh, charging rates and, and that we are seeing for, for allegations of rape and serious sexual offences. So there is, there is something um, demonstrable within our approach and it's desperately unfortunate that a handful, and it is only a handful of high profile cases have had such a toxic effect on what has been, I think, a really strong evidence-based uh, approach to allegations of this nature now going back over the last six years. Simon, can I just ask you, I don't mean to talk over you, Martin, but can I just ask you, Simon, what, what does it mean that this statement that victims should be confident that they will be believed when they first make their complaint. What, what if the police officer to whom they make their complaint doesn't believe them? Does he have to pretend that he believes them? No, it, look, it's so, uh, Matthew, I'm sure you will have seen that awful programme going back, I think over, over a decade now, of a, of a rape victim being interviewed by detectives in the Thames Valley Police Area. And, and what you saw is the awful, awful treatment of, of a victim. You've then reached what, is, what has been a, a seminal moment for, for British policing, and I think for the country, going back a decade now to Jimmy Savile, and as a country having to come to terms with child sexual abuse on a, on a scale at the hands of somebody who was so prominent within, within public life, to then lift, lift the boulder on this and a so many thousands of victims having the confidence to come forward knowing that they will be believed and it is matthew nothing more than a victim knowing that they're going to be come forward that they're going to be treated with respect with empathy that they are their allegations are going to be listened to they are going to be recorded 
And the approach of the officer or the member of staff that is taking that is one that is sympathetic and empathetic and is, re is a recording of what the victim is then telling them. But at that point, there is then an impartial investigation where the investigating officers will go wherever the evidence then takes them without fear or favour. And at that point, if you like, the, 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 the psychology of this then changes. I am now going to go into investigative mode. And as a, as a detective of, of, of the best part of my 35 years of service, I always approached every investigation from that perspective. I will be sympathetic. I will listen. I will treat the victim with, with all due respect. I will believe what they are saying. But once that account has been taken, the evidence has been secured and preserved, I then investigate without fear or favour and I go where the evidence then takes me. No, no one, I'm sure, would, would suggest that complainants should be treated in any other way than, than, than with uh, respect and, and, and courteously and, and so on. But your approach goes beyond that, Simon, because you're saying officers should um, believe the victims at that stage. That, that, that's what I think so many people find difficult. How, how, how can you ensure that an officer will believe a victim? Or, 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 or is, is what you're really saying, that the officers should pretend to believe the victim? No. Uh, what what what's I believe the victim? What are they no. to do wrong? So, Matthew, what I'm, what I'm saying is that, that so many victims have told uh, inquiries uh, and, and, and academic uh, experts during research that during their abuse, they were told they would not be believed. So if you can imagine, a, a victim has going on in their head, going in their on in their mind, nobody's going to believe me because that's what my abuser has told me. And it's this absolute abuse of power that is reinforced. And, and this is not a construct of, of myself or the police service. It's, a, it's the abuse of power and it's the construct of the abuser telling the victim they will not be believed, which is why I have been so strong on saying to victims, saying to survivors, saying to victim and survivor groups, have the confidence and courage to come forward knowing that you will be believed. It's the direct opposite of what they've been told by their abuser. Now, I then expect the investigating officer to record, as they would, as they've been trained, be it in an achieving best evidence environment and achieving and securing that statement, it's important that they then deal, they are sympathetic, they're empathetic, all the words that you've just described. They listen and they record their evidence and the person has had the confidence coming forward knowing they are going to be believed. Thereafter, you then go into the, a, an impartial investigation. Well, I'm afraid I, I still Thank don't you. follow can I, oh, no, Sorry, can Martina. I, yeah. <laughs> can I maybe move, move um, that discussion on a little bit? Because I, I think it is a, it's, a, it's a really important debate to have because the sense of, I think the interpretation of what belief means and the way it's then um, found its way into these high profile cases, as you, as you rightly pointed out, um, where that, that sense of belief, belief, of course, had an, a major um, impact on individuals who were suspected of crimes that they hadn't, in fact, committed. Um, goes to some of the core questions around historical harms, and that's around the evidence and how we can um, rely on memories, um, sometimes distant harms that are still very, very 
clearly felt. Um, but a question from, from Ian um, here around how do we deal with the, the sometimes lack of forensic evidence, lack of, of physical evidence around past harms? Is the capacity there in the police service or in public inquiries to respond to those um, the lack of evidence and, and how, do, how do we respond to that, that kind of issue um, when we deal with past harms? Would you like me to, to start the answer to that question, Martina? Yeah. So, so there, is a, uh, there is the Operation Hydrant uh, guidance, which is published by the College of Policing for all senior investigating officers, which sets out a roadmap for investigations of this, this nature. And, and Ian is absolutely right. Very rarely is there uh, any uh, forensic evidence that will support what is being said by, by the victim survivor. However, what we find on a very, very regular basis is it is not a single victim or survivor that's been abused. And, and actually hundreds, and it is hundreds, of compelling cases have been presented to juries up and down the country based upon the accounts of multiple victims whom will have known each other as children but haven't seen each other probably in, in decades that are then be able to, to describe to a jury their abuse at the hands of their abuser, the similarities, the circumstances, the environment. And, and I think the the evidence speaks for itself in the number of successful prosecutions that have, have taken place because juries have been uh, persuaded, convinced that actually the person uh, before them charged with, with these offences is, is absolutely is guilty. And it goes to the heart of the quality of the investigation, the quality of the evidence that the police officers are able to, to achieve. And there is no doubt that over the course of the, of the last decade, there has been a fundamental shift in uh, our approach, in the quality of the evidence that we are now securing and presenting to uh, the CPS that gives the CPS the confidence then to charge and then to pursue a, a prosecution. And Martine, if I could just give you just in 30 seconds, a very brief example. There was a very high profile prosecution in my own county of a BBC journalist. And at the end of that, a successful prosecution where I think he received an, in excess of 20 years for abuse of, of young boys. I was contacted by somebody that I had known going back to my childhood. And he described to me on how one Sunday afternoon, two of my colleagues from Norfolk and Stadbury had knocked on his door and asked him about potential abuse at the hands of this offender. Four hours later, he for the first time ever had made a full disclosure of, of, his, of his abuse. Now, for me, that just speaks volumes of, of what the police service is now doing, how we have moved on, and how successful the, the approach uh, has been. Yeah. And I think the context that you alluded to around the, the Roger Grave documentary, which is actually from the 90s, so we're talking a long, long, long time ago, um, around the, the past treatment of, of particularly complainants of sexual assaults in policing um, is quite important in, in that context. But it does raise fundamental questions around, um, particularly when it comes to, um, as we set out in the beginning, ordinary past crimes, um, whether there might 
need to be a consideration of, of limitations. Matthew, do you think there, is a, there, there are boundaries or limits to responses to, to past harms that we need to consider in this context? And I'm thinking particularly about time statutes of time limitations. Well, I'm, I'm not a... I'm not a believer in, in certainly for serious offences, I, I don't support statutes of limitations because I agree with Simon that there are cases which are strong and may date from many years ago. Um, but that said, um, I think we, we are uh, not just in danger of, I think we are prosecuting too many historic cases on weak evidence. So I'm not talking about evidence, uh, cases where there may be multiple complainants who, who, who demonstrably don't know each other from uh, um, over many years, the sort that Simon's talking about. They may well be strong cases. I'm talking about the sort of cases which depend on a single complainant or complainants who are very closely linked or complainants who may have a history of of. Uh, um, fantasy or or, 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 or or very troubled past, which may be completely unrelated to any abuse that they have suffered. And I'm afraid uh, a lot of my cases that I see these days are, are appeal cases rather than first instance cases. And again and again, um, one comes across cases where, frankly, my jaw drops at the quality of the evidence that has led to successful prosecutions. And it's very, very difficult to appeal. I mean, much, much better advocates than me struggle to um, persuade court, the Court of Appeal to do anything about cases simply because the evidence is weak, because that's not the way our system works. Our system works is, well, call some evidence in front of a jury. Uh, and uh, as long as the judge gets the law right, and there's no fresh evidence, which there very rarely is in cases of that sort, well, um, the jury's verdict is to be trusted. And I'm afraid, I, I don't agree with Simon that um, most of these cases are, are most of them are, are strong, I don't know, but there is a significant um, number of cases which depend ultimately on one person's or two person's word against another where we're expecting juries to do the impossible, to uh, be sure uh, as whether one person is telling the truth or the other person is telling the truth with nothing else to go on or virtually nothing else to go on. Now that's not a recipe for justice. Justice can't be done in those circumstances. Uh, and prosecution is not the right approach in those circumstances. And for Simon to say, oh, well, his approach is justified because now we have more prosecutions more successful prosecutions, as he calls them, well, th they may be nominally successful if they put people behind bars, but if they're, if they're putting innocent people behind bars, as I believe some of them are, um, then they're not successful prosecutions. They're very unsuccessful prosecutions. They're creating more injustice. Uh, and uh, I think we've gone uh, too far in permitting prosecutions on weak evidence. I mean, different countries have different approaches to this. Some, some do have statutes of limitation, excuse me, uh, particularly in America, um, although that's, that's um, perhaps changing to an extent in America. They, they seem to be uh, abolishing some of those statutes of limitation. 
Uh, other countries have um, laws on, on corroboration. Uh, Scottish law, for example, requires at least some degree of corroboration. I'm no expert on Scottish law, um, but at present, although there are moves to change that, um, crimes for proof require some degree of corroboration. We, we've abolished what, what passed for a corroboration rule in this country some time ago. It was, it was a pretty bad law, and I understand why it was abolished. But it has opened the door to very dangerous prosecutions. Let, let, let's give an example from a, another jurisdiction which people will be familiar with of the sort of thing that can happen. It, it's, it's, it's typical in one way of many cases that are prosecuted in, in countries like England or Australia. Um, it's atypical because it involves a high profile defendant, Cardinal Pell's case. Um, there the jury was presented with evidence from a single complainant, who was obviously a very compelling witness. Uh, everybody who heard him, were the jury convicted on his word, um, the, the first level court of appeal um, also listened to his testimony, also found him a very compelling and, and, and believable witness. Um, but on the other side of the coin, there was evidence which showed from people who had no particular axe to grind that his crime that he was describing was virtually impossible. It, 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 was, it was impossible to see how it could have happened given the, the uh, procedure in, in the church. Well, two different approaches there by the Australian courts of appeal. The lower courts in, in Victoria said, well, it's up to the jury. They found the witness compelling and, and uh, that, that, that they could be sure on that evidence. The higher court, uh, the high court of Australia, the Australian equivalent of our Supreme Court said, no, that's not the right approach. Um, because um, you couldn't simply um, be persuaded by a, 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 a well, there were dangers in simply allowing a jury to be persuaded by a compelling witness that what he was saying must be true when there was objective evidence going the other way, demonstrating that it really couldn't be true. Now, it, it, in that case, ultimately, there was evidence going in the other direction, which showed that Cardinal Pell... Um, certainly on one, one view, he couldn't have done what he was said to have done. I'm afraid in other cases, there is no such evidence. Uh, and juries are being asked simply to listen to the witnesses uh, and decide which they find the more believable. That's incredibly dangerous. Uh, and I think over the last few years, we've um, stored up, uh, whether it will ever, um, ever change, um, but I fear we have... Um, had an awful lot uh, of terrible injustices in some of these historical prosecutions. Uh, and uh, I'm afraid Simon's point, well, that, that, that successful prosecutions demonstrate that the police approach is, is the right approach, um, doesn't convince me at all, because I think some of those successful prosecutions, so-called, have in fact just been instruments of injustice. Martina, Matthew. Yes, Martina, yeah. can Wendy, I step please. in at this stage? Yeah. Because I've listened to the discussion with great interest and I do think that there are some parallels which come out of the Windrush Review and which I'd like to throw out there to see whether or not people agree. Um, yes, we're not talking about investigations, we weren't talking about convictions, but we were talking about past harms. 
And so the concept of convicting on weak evidence uh, was actually relevant because I mentioned in my introduction that um, the individuals who were swept up in the Windrush scandal lacked documentary proof of their status. And so the concept of belief came to the fore. The question was, would they be believed? And the question was, should they be believed? And in considering those factors, the Home Office had to have regard to the standard of proof that should be applied, but also the burden of proof. So I think there are some parallels here. And you would have, and I came across, countless examples of individuals speaking to immigration officials, you know, a grandmother in her 50s who had been brought up in the UK, came to the UK at the age of, I think it was five, you know, had lived in the UK for 50 years, could could demonstrate that they had children and grandchildren, but because they had no evidence of their date of entry to the UK, and because they weren't able to, because they'd never left the UK having come to the UK, and so there was no evidence of that they're having continuously lived in the UK, it was just they came and they stayed. And because of that, they weren't believed. And we also came across an internal Home Office circular which said, you know, you are going to come across, this is an internal circular to Home Office staff saying you are going to come across uh, individuals who've come to the UK as children on parent um, passports, for example, and who therefore won't, and who've never left, and therefore who won't be able to prove uh, their date of entry and that they, they were here and were here legally. Uh, and the instruction was that they should be treated with, the circular read, they should be treated with sensitivity and respect. Um, but we saw what happened when that didn't occur. Um, and so it was the egregious nature of uh, the treatment that really formed the basis of the scandal. So whilst there was universal acceptance that it shouldn't have happened, and whilst there was evidence when the team and I carried out the review, there was evidence of you know, the different immigration laws that conferred um, nationality rights on those who came to the UK from the Caribbean. So there was that sort of evidence, but it was because those who were the victims of the scandal could not provide evidence to the required standard uh, that they fell into difficulty. And what we found was the Home Office wasn't even carrying out its own rules in accordance with the way that it should have. So Simon's point about um, in the past, officers not necessarily uh, demonstrating that empathy, not necessarily demonstrating that sensitivity, uh, and that being part of the problem, I think was also relevant in the Windrush scandal. So I simply wanted to, to draw that parallel. Sometimes, um, you know, it depends on what you re regard as evidence, and it also depends 
on how effectively those who are responsible for administering these rules and regulations are doing so in practice. Thank you, Wendy. And I think it is it is really important to, to contextualise this, this notion of belief, but it also highlights potentially that um, that question whether the current mechanisms of dealing with past harms are actually um, fit for purpose. So is a jury trial really the right way to go about um, some of those um, distant harms? And is that a, a valid question? Because miscarriages of justice are real. They're not justice. Um, they're the opposite of that. So, th you know, if there's a danger of creating more harm, in the process of criminal justice, we need to to be able to guard against that. Um, so, do we, you know, as a as a can as I a panel, just, maybe? I, sorry, yes, Simon. because I've 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 got to I've got to come back to Matthew on that yeah. point and, and just and just pick up on that. And, and Matthew will know this, uh, you know, very very well. Uh, as will Wendy, as a as a as a chief crown prosecutor with the, the Crown Prosecution Service. Uh, we we investigate allegations of of crime and we investigate to the best of our ability, and we then put the evidence before the Crown Prosecution Service. And, and I, my personal view at this moment in time is that the threshold that the Crown Prosecution Service now applies to the decision to charge and prosecute or not is as high as it's ever been, if not higher. And it's the CPS that takes the case to court. They will instruct a, a barrister in the Crown Court to then prosecute the, the, the case and ultimately it's for the CPS to make a decision if charges are preferred and a prosecution is pursued. That is not the responsibility of, of the police service. And, uh, you know, I, again, I have to say it, I've, I've always thought, believed that we have a, a, a justice system which is the envy of the world and it's held in the, in the highest regard. One of my, my dearest friends is a, is a Queen's counsel. And, and he and I regularly debate the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of our justice system. But my own experience is that we have a, a justice system, which I say is held in the highest regard. We have a Crown Prosecution Service, which is responsible for charging and for then pursuing a prosecution. And, and ultimately, of course, nobody ever wants to see a, a miscarriage of justice. But in those cases that have been presented before a jury, where a jury is persuaded beyond all reasonable doubt that the evidence says that the person is guilty, then they are turning, returning that, that verdict. And, and I think we just need to be really careful here to understand what the roles and responsibilities are and, and where the police service's job starts and finishes and what the role of the CPS is and then what the role of the jury is. Thanks, Simon. Okay, so shall we... I've got a couple of questions on those particular issues around the past harms, um, but also in terms of balancing the, um, the needs of today, um, the harms of today against dealing with the past, past harms that we've, we've seen. So restricted resources, we are all too aware of that the criminal justice system is creaking in various um, parts. So how do we balance that desire to bring justice to those who've suffered past harms with um, the need to investigate um, current harms properly. And you mentioned already the, the atrocious um, rape, prosecution and conviction rates um, that we, you know, the criminal justice system has struggled with for a long time. So how do we balance those? And maybe we'll start um, 
Miss Simon, to, to, from a policing perspective so, in terms of so your resources? My, so my, my position on this is, is, is very clear, and I believe that chief constables up and down the country are, 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 are pursuing this, this strategy. The most important thing in dealing with a past harm is to make sure that the alleged abuser, alleged offender, is not in a position where they are still abusing and, and offending. And the, the safeguarding implications of the allegations are at the forefront of our considerations from the outset. And I have said very publicly before that age is no barrier to offending when you are talking specifically about child sexual abuse. And, and I, within my own force area, I have dealt with and seen cases of, of octogenarians that are still abusing. So I think it's, it's really important that the, our approach is based upon what, is there a present threat being posed by the offender? If there is, it's quite clear that we need to do something now, but in the circumstances where there isn't a, a, an ongoing threat, then that risk then gets managed in the context of all the other demands that as a chief constable I'm responsible for, for overseeing. And that's something I think that we are, we are very good at doing. Every day, my colleagues are managing threat, harm and risk uh, across, across Norfolk. Some of those investigations will be uh, of uh, non-recent abuse uh, and, and the offender no longer poses a risk to children. Therefore, if more important jobs come in where there is an ongoing safeguarding risk, that they will then be put on the back burner a little bit. It's that, it's that balance. But actually, I think it's a very, very straightforward concept, which I'd like to think that most people would appreciate. That is, it's, it's sensible, it's proportionate, and actually it's, it's quite justified under the circumstances in the context of all the harms that we are having to manage every single day. Thank you, Simon. Matthew, do you want to comment on that particular issue? Yeah, well, again, I don't disagree with, with everything Simon says at all. And um, certainly, um, if, if there's a, a sort of current threat um, or, or a current safeguarding danger, as he puts it, um, then clearly that should have a, a high policing priority. Um, I, I think your question is, how do we balance the demand for, for sort of sanctions against potential abusers with, with the need to, to um, give justice. I think it depends what you mean by justice, but if you mean justice in the criminal courts, I think the blunt reality sometimes is that that cannot be achieved because um, it's impossible to reach the high standard of proof uh, that, that, that we need in the criminal courts, or it's impossible fairly to do that. Um, I think but to go back really to what Wendy was saying, um, there are different standards of proof, obviously, and require for different, different purposes. Uh, and it's one thing to say, well, I can trust the word of, of somebody who, who says they've been living in this country for, for, for 40 or 50 years and they may not have papers. That's one thing. I'm more than happy um, to apply very, very low standard of proof in those circumstances. On the other hand, if, if the... Um, the question is whether somebody should be convicted of, of an appalling offence and, and locked up for, for 20 plus years, then I think uh, we, we should apply, um, we do nominally at least, apply a, a very high standard of proof. Um, but my, my difficulty is, 
is I don't see in many cases, I've, I've given the Cardinal Pell one as, as an example of a single complainant without any corroboration. Um, just to demonstrate, that was in Australia, but everyone knows about it. It's the sort of case that can be brought in this country. It's, it's a complete myth that, that there is that always, um, there is always sort of a strong case where a jury convicts. That's not the case. It can depend on a, on a single complainant. Um, and I'm afraid in that sort of case, um, where the evidence has vanished from years ago, there can be insuperable difficulties ever to achieving the, the sort of proof that we require for criminal justice. It's not always the case. There may be contemporaneous complaints made or, or, or I don't know, a complainant might have kept a diary or something like that, dating from the time. There's, there's all sorts of possibilities of evidence which might support even a single complainant, which is why I don't support a, a, a sort of absolute rule. But I do think we've gone much too far um, in doing what, what Simon um, said earlier, I'm, I'm going to misquote him slightly, but in seeing the police as, um, he, he didn't use this phrase, but it's, it, it's my understanding of what he was saying, almost to start with as agents of the com complainants to help the complainant um, get what they want. That's, that's not the way the police should operate. It's not the way, certainly not the way the justice system should operate. And I think we've tipped the balance too far in that direction. Thank you, Matthew. I think, you know, it's fair to say that I don't, I'm not, that that's not what, what Simon was saying, but I want no, to- no, I, I appreciate it. I, mis, I misquoted him. Um, I did make a note of it at the time. I've lost my, I know, I think, here we are. What, what he said was, we are working with survivors to bring some sort of resolution to their abuse, um, was the note I made at, at the time. Um, I don't like the idea of, of, of police officers uh, seeing their role is to work with survivors to bring resolution to their abuse. That's not what they should be doing, in my view. They should be investigating crimes and, and looking for evidence going um, in all directions. I know he said he was, after initially meeting the survivors and believing them, they would do that. But I don't think at any stage of an investigation is it appropriate for police officers to be told that their role is to work with uh, survivors to bring a resolution to their abuse. That's, that's a, a dangerous path to go down. Thank you. Just before we kind of come to a, an opportunity for, for our panellists to sum up their thoughts, I, I wanted to turn back to Wendy and maybe raise another quite controversial aspect of this uh, that's been coming through in the questions, which is how do we, um, and it goes beyond the, the question, of course, of criminal justice, but how do we assess harms that were done in the past, um, which at the time might not have been recognised as such, against the social norms of today? So this relates in, 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 in the um, situation of the unmarried um, mothers um, discussion that we, we are just seeing um, in Northern Ireland and Ireland again, um, but also in, in relation to some, some other areas um, of when harm is contained. So how do, we, how do we respond to that when we're using our standards today um, mm -hmm. on actions of the, the past? And it kind of touches on, the, on a similar tension between the believing victims and, and responding to harm, but also acknowledging that, you know, we have to, to live in to prevent future harm. It's, 
And it, it is a, a difficult question to, to answer because on the one hand, yes, uh, if one's talking about historic practices and cultures and attitudes, and then if one brings the, the situation forward to the present day, there may be different uh, considerations that apply at this stage. But I do think that there are certain fundamental norms that all societies should conform to. And of course, different societies will have their different cultural norms. And I, I talked about um, you know, the, the concept of British values. And I do think that um, you know, fair play has to be one of them. And you know, what's considered to be positive uh, and professional and appropriate treatment today, I am sure, would stand the test of time if uh, if used retrospectively. So I would imagine that uh, one would struggle to justify some actions and some behaviours simply by saying, well, it's different now. Um, and I think that as long as, uh, yes, there is some recognition of the prevailing circumstances at the time, that that should, um, you know, guide uh, people in terms of how they deal with matters uh, in the present day, but when looking back retrospectively. Thanks, Wendy. It's very helpful, and I think it is. It's a really difficult balance. Um, a final question from from the audience here coming through it was the, the first question that actually came through, and it, again, it's quite a an important one in terms of how we class past harms? When does the past start? And this relates to um, COVID-19 and, and the questions around institutional failings um, around the government's response. When do we think it is appropriate to think about um, public inquiries? And of course, that is hotly debated at the moment. There will probably be one. Um, is that a, a matter of, of, of this debate when is is it a past when is it appropriate to intervene in ongoing issues um, which again goes possibly back to the question of prevention um, and risk management you know Simon mentioned this in, in ordinary cases we have a very good understanding of how risk needs to be managed in terms of, of you know the risk of harm to individuals but how does this relate when when we have unfolding crises for example but do you have any views on on that Wendy <laughs> Um, I think I can only draw the parallel with Windrush at the time when the scandal broke and it broke in April of 2018. There was an immediate clamour for, you know, something to be done. And my understanding is that there were a number of options that were considered at the time. I wasn't party to them, so there will be a degree of speculation. But certainly one of the uh, potential um, mechanisms to use was a public inquiry. I was asked to do a lessons learned review, which is very different to a public inquiry. And I am aware that there was a debate at the time. And some of the factors that were considered uh, were things like delay. But um, what I'd say is that 
I, th these, these were the elements of the lessons learned review. I had a home office team. Um, some people would have said, oh, that's not necessarily independent. Um, but I did bring in a small team of my own to provide that layer of independence in addition to my own position. Um, also, the process was uh, confidential um, and people may say, well, you know, we, we would have wanted to have heard X give evidence which a public inquiry would have uh, permitted. But what I did find, um, and if I talk about the, the Home Office team first and foremost, was that yes, whilst that might have raised certain risks, the fact that I had a home office team who were well-versed in the workings of the department, in the culture of the, the department, um, and in everything else, that enabled me to really strip through the bureaucracy and get right to the heart of the issues. Um, also, the fact that it was a confidential process meant that people volunteered information um, in circumstances where they indicated had they, you know, had it been a public inquiry, they certainly would not have done so. So, you know, I had a number of uh, people who came forward and made disclosures and they might not have even been asked to give evidence at a public inquiry. And there is also the delay. Now, I have to put my hands up. My review did take quite a long time, but certainly nowhere near the number of years that some public inquiries can take. So, so then the question is, um, and this goes to a point that Simon made earlier, which was, uh, what are the wishes of those who've been affected? And the people that I spoke to said, you know, I remember one person said, if there'd been a public inquiry, I could have had somebody to blame. And it was very important to that person. But the overwhelming sense of the hundreds of people that I did speak to who had been affected was that they wanted an, an acknowledgement that they had been done wrong and that, uh, it, you know, a wrong had been perpetrated and that it shouldn't have happened. And they wanted an apology um, and they wanted uh, redress. Um, and, for, you know, fortunately, that, uh, that was the view that was expressed. So I can see potential limitations depending on the nature of the mechanism that's used, but also potential opportunities. Thank you, Wendy. Simon, do you have a, a comment on this? Uh, yes, uh, uh, I, I do. Uh, I look at this very much through the lens of, of what Wendy has just articulated, the, the victims and survivors of, of any of these, any of these public uh, inquiries. And the challenges that, that we are faced with as a society having to come to terms with those failures and acknowledging it publicly and saying sorry with, with some form of restitution. And, and when you speak to survivors and victims, I think that is, is probably more important than, than anything. And, and I would, I'd look at 
some of the challenges that I think the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse faces, it's, it's looking at abuse that was taking place in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And of course, the world is now a very, very different place. And it's very difficult to judge what was taking place all those decades ago against the current, the current standard. So I think there is a, there is a, a place for, for public inquiries, but with a, with a significant caveat, the time that these inquiries can take can be so incredibly long that I worry about the recommendations at the end and their relevance of it. There is huge cost associated with it. And I wonder if victims and survivors would rather see that type of investment being made in the support services and infrastructure to support them now, because adult survivors of non-recent child sexual abuse would say the infrastructure that is currently there to support them is, is at best woeful, uh, and, and at worst it is, just, it is just not there at all. And it, it's a case of getting that, getting that balance right. But actually the importance of the acknowledgement, the importance of saying sorry, and the importance of that, of that restitution, I think should be at, at the forefront of, of our thinking before we start to commission uh, incredibly expensive uh, public hearings where actually the, the recommendations, so many of which you could write already, and actually so much has changed in the, in the period of time that, that's, that's elapsed. Thank you, Simon. Yeah. Matthew, any kind of... Yeah, well, I, I think um, there obviously will have to be an inquiry in, into the, the COVID. Um, and quite when that will be, I don't know. It's all from a political point of view. I, I would have thought the government wants to sort of pick it well into the future. Um, but I think there will be a clamour for a, a proper inquiry. Everything one would have hoped will be well documented. Um, and I would hope that there will be an inquiry led by a, a, a very um, well-respected senior judge. Um, and I think public inquiries of that sort can actually be quite, quite effective. I don't think they're always a waste of time. Um, I'm le leaving the, the independent inquiry into child sex abuse on one side, because I have a few problems with some aspects of that. But looking back into the past, for example, the inquiry into um, Bloody Sunday was, was incredibly expensive. It took years and years and years, but I think in the end it um, established as close as we're going to get to the truth of, of what happened on, on, on that awful day. And I think that was, that was helpful um, in bringing about a degree of reconciliation in, in Northern Ireland. So I think that was a very successful inquiry, even though it was incredibly expensive. And I think given the... Um, the, the sort of disaster that we're, we're, we're seeing with the COVID um, epidemic in, in this country, I, I think probably an inquiry in which no expense is spared is, is probably justified. Thank you, Matthew. Um, we were talking at the beginning of the, the, um, the seminar with the panellists around um, filling 90 minutes of time, and it is with great credit to them that we have come very close to the 90 minutes um, of a really, really fascinating debate. Um, there is unfortunately no more time for final thoughts unless there is a very pressing comment anyone would like to make. No. No. no thanks. Can I, 
Thank you ever so much for your time, for the absolutely um, fascinating debate, the audience questions, but also just to kind of reflect on that we can see how past harms, whether they are perpetrated by state agents, by individuals, how there are different perspectives and the complexity of, of balancing the needs of, of preventing harms now and reflecting on the harms of the past, acknowledging the harms of the past, um, but also doing justice to people who might be caught up in that element of acknowledgement um, and, and preventing further harms in the processes of, of justice um, is, is um, so important that we engage in those debates and, and actually, actually explore those in depth. So I'm, I'm really um, pleased um, that you've joined us and it was a, a really extraordinary um, debate and I would like to thank you all very much for that. Thank in you. terms of um, this debate carrying on, I would like to alert you to the fact that there are some two more webinars coming up, the next one already on the 10th of February with Jonathan Powell, who's the CEO of Intermediate and the former chief negotiator um, on Northern Ireland and Assistant Chief Constable Karen Wilson, QPM from Lincolnshire Constabulary. Um, they will be discussing how Northern Ireland has confronted its troubled past um, and looks at revisiting past crimes and large scale disruption, clearly something that um, is still of vital importance today in Northern Ireland. Um, so please, if you're interested, um, sign up and, um, and follow that particular webinar as well. Also, just before I say goodbye, I would like to highlight that, um, as all charities, the Cumberland Lodge is facing quite difficult financial times during this, the, the current pandemic. So if you have enjoyed today's event and you would like to support their work, please um, consider making a small donation and have a look at the website where you will find some, some further details on, on, on that. Um, but for now, can I just thank you once again to our wonderful guests, Simon, Wendy and Matthew. It was a pleasure talking to you all. Um, and that is goodbye for today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Bye now. Bye.